Seize the means of production. Let's talk about Marxism. The aim of Marxism is to bring about a class of society based on the common ownership of the means of production, distribution, and exchange. Marxism is a materialist philosophy. That is, it tries to explain things without assuming the existence of a world or of forces beyond the natural world around us in the society that we live in. It looks for concrete, scientific, logical explanations of the world of observable fact. Its opposite, then, is idealist philosophy, which does believe in the existence of a spiritual world elsewhere and would offer, for instance, religious explanations for life and conduct. But whereas other philosophies merely seek to understand the world, Marxism seeks to change it. Marxism sees progress as coming about through the struggle for power between different social classes. This view of history as class struggle regards it as motored by the competition for economic, social, and political advantage. The exploitation of one social class by another is seen especially in modern industrial capitalism, particularly in its unrestricted 19th century form. The result of this exploitation is alienation, which is the state that comes about when the worker is de-skilled and made to perform fragmented, repetitive tasks in a sequence of whose nature and purpose he or she has no overall grasp. By contrast, in the older pre-industrial or cottage industry system of manufacture, home and workplace were one. The worker completed the whole production process in all its variety and was in direct contact with those who might buy the product. These alienated workers have undergone the process of reification, which is a term used in Marx's major work, Das Kapital. It concerns the way that when capitalist goals and questions of profit and loss are paramount, workers are stripped of their full humanity and are thought of as merely hands or the labor force, so that, for instance, the effects of industrial closures are calculated in purely economic terms. People become things. The simplest Marxist model of a society sees it as constituted by two elements. A base, the material means of production, distribution, and exchange, and a superstructure, which is the cultural world of ideas, art, religion, law, and so on. The essential Marxist view is that the latter things are not innocent, but are determined or shaped by the nature of the economic base. This belief about culture, known as economic determinism, is a central part of Marxist thinking. So let's dig into determinism a little bit more. Many of the grand theories developed in the second half of the 19th century are deterministic in nature. Charles Darwin's theory of evolution suggests that much of our behavior is determined by our genes. Sigmund Freud argued that our lives are affected by our unconscious and that our psychological and sexual wishes and desires are much affected by the formative influences of our childhood. Similarly, Karl Marx theorized that human beings are the product of their social and economic environment. Marx called the economic conditions of life the base or infrastructure. The base includes everything from technology and raw materials to the social organization of the workplace. 
This economic base has a powerful effect on the superstructure, Marx's term for society, culture, and the world of ideas. Marx sometimes referred to the superstructure as consciousness, the way we think and look at reality. Marx famously said, It is not the consciousness of men that determines their being, but on the contrary, their social being that determines their consciousness. Our ability to think for ourselves is limited. Our ideas are shaped by the material conditions of life. Literature, for Marx, belongs to the superstructure. The challenge, then, is to see how it is influenced by the economic base. Marx himself often treated literature as simple propaganda for the ruling classes, and there's some truth to this. For instance, in a feudal society, people loved chivalric romances, stories about knights who fight for honor and win their ladies' love. In today's capitalistic society, many people enjoy watching James Bond movies, which celebrate the glamorous lifestyle of the modern gentleman, the ladies' man who dresses in expensive clothes and drives fast cars. In these cultural fantasies, it is the aristocrat who comes to our rescue and saves us from imaginary villains that seek to destroy the status quo. Yet many later Marxists were unhappy with Marx's somewhat naive characterization of literature as propaganda. For instance, one Italian communist used the concept of hegemony to describe the way in which ideology is not simply oppressive and coercive, but also involves an element of consent. There has to be some reason for me to go see a James Bond movie, even when the lifestyle depicted there might be unattainable. More recently, the cultural critic Raymond Williams suggested that every historical time period has competing hegemonies. The dominant hegemony promotes the interests of the ruling classes, the residual hegemony defends the culture and belief system of the previous era, and the emergent hegemony shares revolutionary ideas that may later become the dominant hegemony. Literature thus reveals to us the spirit of the times, the issues that mattered to people. Literature, and entertainment, is about much more than enjoyment or escapism. It is a manifestation of class struggle. Marxist literary criticism maintains that a writer's social class, and that class's prevailing ideology, so the class's outlooks, its values, tacit assumptions, half-realized allegiances, and so on, it has, they have a major bearing on what is written by a member of that class. So instead of seeing authors as primarily autonomous, inspired individuals whose genius and creative imagination enables them to create original and timeless works of art, the Marxist sees them as constantly formed by their social contexts in ways which they themselves would usually not admit. This is true not just of the content of their work, but also of the formal aspects of their writing, which might at first seem to have no possible political overtones. For instance, the prominent British Marxist critic Terry Eagleton suggests that, in language, shared definitions and regularities of grammar both reflect and help to constitute a well-ordered political state. And likewise, Catherine Belsey, another pro prominent British left-wing critic, argues that the form of the realist novel contains implicit validation of the existing social structure, because realism, by its very nature, leaves conventional ways of seeing intact and hence tends to discourage critical scrutiny of reality. 
form includes conventional features of the novel, so chronological time schemes, formal beginnings and endings, in-depth psychological characterizations, intricate plotting, and fixed narratorial points of view. Similarly, the fragmented, absurdist forms of drama and fiction used by 20th century writers like Samuel Beckett and Franz Kafka are seen as a response to the contradictions and divisions inherent in late capitalist society. However, it is probably true to say that traditional Marxist criticism tends to deal with history in a fairly generalized way. It talks about conflicts between social classes and clashes of large historical forces, but contrary to popular belief, it rarely discusses the detail of a specific historical situation and relates it closely to the interpretation of a particular literary text. This suggests one of the main differences between Marxist criticism of the 1960s and 70s and the cultural materialist and new historicist criticism which came about in the 1980s, since the new historicist criticism very often deals closely with specific historical documents attempting in an almost archaeological spirit to recreate the state of mind of a particular moment in history. So, what do Marxist literary critics do with texts? How do we analyze a piece of literature through the Marxist lens? So Marxist critics explore ways in which the text reveals ideological oppression of a dominant economic class over subordinate classes. In order to do this, a Marxist might ask some of the following questions. Does the text reflect or resist a dominant ideology? Does it do both? Does the main character in a narrative affirm or resist bourgeoisie values? Whose story gets told in the text? Are lower economic groups ignored or devalued? Are values that support the dominant economic group given privilege? This can happen tacitly in the way that in which values are taken to be self-evident. They look at the conditions of production for the work of art. For example, they ask, what were the economic conditions for publication of a work? Who was the audience? What does the text suggest about the values of this audience? And Marxist literary criticism often shares with feminist criticism a desire to challenge the power structures in contemporary society. For feminists, the issue is a marginalized gender. For Marxists, the issue is not gender, but economic power, leading to political power. Marxist literary criticism, like feminism, can also be viewed as a type of cultural criticism, in that it seeks to analyze a discourse of power that makes up one of the discourses that determine a text's historical meaning. Here's some more of what Marxist critics might do. They might make a division between the overt and the covert content of a literary work. So the surface content and the latent or the hidden content of a work, much as psychoanalytic critics do. And then they would relate the covert subject matter, the hidden subject matter of the literary work to basic Marxist themes like class structure, class struggle, and the progression of society through various historical stages, such as the transition from feudalism to industrial capitalism. 
In this way, we might see the conflicts of King Lear um, as being really about the conflict of class interest between the rising class, which was the bourgeoisie, and the falling class, which would have been the feudal overlords. Another method used by Marxist critics is to relate the context of a work to the social class status of the author. In such cases, an assumption is made, which is again similar to those made by psychoanalytic critics, that the author is unaware of precisely what he or she is saying or revealing in the text. A third Marxist method is to explain the nature of a whole literary genre in terms of the social period which produced it. For instance, The Rise of the Novel by Ian Watt relates to the growth of the novel in the 18th century. Uh, it relates that to the expansion of the middle classes during that period. The novel speaks for this social class, just as, for instance, tragedy speaks for the monarchy and nobility, and the ballad speaks for the rural and semi-urban working class. A fourth Marxist practice is to relate a literary work to the social assumptions of the time in which it is consumed, a strategy which is used particularly in the later variant of Marxist criticism known as cultural materialism. So here are some of the recurrent terms in Marxist literary criticism that you might be able to use as you analyze um, Ellison's Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man. <clears throat> So you might look for the relationship between the base and the superstructure. So base, again, in Marxism, refers to the economic base. Superstructure emerges from this base and consists of law, politics, philosophy, religion, art, all of that abstract, higher thinking kind of stuff. So who makes up the base and who makes up the superstructure and what is the relationship between the two? You may also look for ideology, which is the shared beliefs and values held in an unquestioning manner by a culture. It governs what that culture deems to be normal and valuable. For Marxists, ideology is determined by economics. So a rough approximation would be, tell me how much money you have and I'll tell you how you think. You might look for hegemony. This is that term that was coined by the Italian theorist Antonio Gramsci, uh, and it refers to the pervasive system of assumptions, meaning and meanings and values, the web of ideologies, in other words, that shapes the way things look, what they mean, and therefore what reality is for the majority of people within a given culture. You may also look for reification. This is often used to describe the way in which people are turned into commodities useful in market exchange. For instance, some would argue that the media's obsession with tragedy, like the deaths of Jean-Benet Ramsey, Princess Diana, JFK, uh, the murders at Columbine High School in Colorado, how the media has made commodities out of grieving people. Media expresses sympathy, but economically thrives on the events through ratings boosts. So consider any and all of those terms to be in play as you read through Ellison's Repent Harlequins of the TikTok Man and see if we can come to some kind of conclusive meaning as to what some kind of message that Ellison might have been sending about the values of a capitalistic society. And maybe he has some kind of message for what we should do to even the scales 
between the system of power and those who simply have to do as they are told.